Framing comprises a set of concepts and theoretical perspectives on how individuals, groups, and societies organize, perceive, and communicate in reality. Now, what do they mean by reality? Reality is the sum or aggregate of all that is real or existent within the universe, as opposed to that which is only imaginary, non-existential, no, non-existent, or non-actual. The term is also used to refer to the ontological status of things. Now, the ontological status, I thought, was your interpretation of what's real. So the study of what's real. I guess that would be <laughs> reality, but people could have an ontological shock, according to uh, John Mack in uh, his books, the, uh, the Passport to the Cosmos, and uh, what is the other one? There's another one around here. I could do podcasts on those, but anyways, he talks about ontological shock, as in you're, you're, you are shocked about the nature of reality. It is not what you thought it was. <laughs> so that's his ontological shock. What you ontologically think is real and what is objectively real may not be the same thing. We can be wrong, obviously. So framing can manifest in thought. Now, what do they mean by thought? The mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought. Now, you don't use the word in the definition, right? Experience and the senses. You shouldn't use the word in the definition. That's amateur. Uh, so framing can manifest in thought or interpersonal communication. Why did they need the interpersonal? Why did it say in communication? It's implied between two people. I guess computers can communicate, blah, 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 right? So frames in thought consist of the mental representations, interpretations, and simplifications of reality. Now, of course, reality is vastly simplified for our comprehension of what's going on. We don't know. When you look out in the world, you don't know everything that's going on in the world. So obviously, we simplify, right? Frames in communication consist of the communication of frames between different actors. So... <laughs> Frames in communication consist of the communication of frames between different actors. Framing is a key component of sociology. Well, that's, I don't like that because these are not sciences, right? Sociology and all this crap. The study of social interaction among humans. Now, framing isn't the interaction between humans. Framing is what's used... We'll get into it, but it's, 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 it's how things are presented, how things are interpreted. You think of the definition of the word interpretation. Interpretation isn't you're making sense of something. It's you're making sense of something, and then you're giving your interpretation of that. You could be giving your interpretation as a thought, but you're still formulating and putting it all together into a little bundle, which is your interpretation, which is the final product. Like uh, an artwork can be an interpretation, right? A, a thing, a sculpture, it can be somebody's interpretation of something, right? It's not what they're thinking, you know, or how they're thinking about it or, or the thinking of it. It's the result of their thinking of it. So where was I? Yeah, so the, the study of social interaction among humans. Framing is an integral part of conveying and processing data daily. So framing is an integral part of conveying 
and processing data daily. Successful framing techniques. Successful framing techniques. What do they mean successful? Successful at what? Right. So now they're talking about techniques. It's not just an intrinsic thing that humans do. This is not what we're talking about. Once you refer to successful techniques. So successful framing techniques can be used to reduce the ambiguity of intangible talk topics by contextualizing the information in such a way that represents or the recipients can connect to uh, what they already know. So here they're referring to framing as dumbing down something, right? Or just using metaphor or models, right? It's not, uh, it's not really framing. Framing is taking the specific bits of the whole and, and sort of biasing it to interpret it a different way. Or here they're saying it's more just a model. It can be, I guess. Social theory framing is a schemata. So what is schemata? We've did a, a couple podcasts probably on that. A schemata is just a, uh, your brain, picture your brain being a computer. And a schemata is a concept or a program that your brain can use to interpret a certain thing a certain way. It's a concept, an individual cell of a concept. Um, uh, it's not really a model. I mean, you can use it. Like you think of schematics in electronics, a schematic is a model, but that's a slightly different definition of, you know, schema. But schema can be, you think of, see the overlap there. Okay, what social, social theory framing is a schemata of interpretation. <laughs> I already talked about interpretation, right? It's your, uh, we already talked about it. A collection of anecdotes and stereotypes. So uh, an anecdote is uh, evidence based only on your personal experience. So that's why people say, oh, it's an anecdote. It's an anecdote. It's not valid. It's, it's not evidence. Well, it is evidence, but it's evidence based on your uh, personal observations, you know, uh, collected, you know, uh, casually. <laughs> it's something that I observed. I didn't actually go pursuing it. It's just something that sort of fell on me and I have a funny story about that, right? So there's your anecdote. But uh, it is evidence. If you happen to witness somebody murdering somebody and they say, well, that's not, that's just an anecdote. <laughs> no, it's you saw the person killing somebody, right? So it is evidence. So if somebody says anecdotes aren't evidence, they are absolutely evidence. And of course, uh, stereotypes we talked about already. It's, uh, well, I'm not going to go over it again. Just went over, I think, the last episode, last podcast. So anecdotes and stereotypes. So social theory, framing is a schema of interpretation. So a concept of interpreting, a way of interpreting, a collection, a program of interpreting, a collection of anecdotes and stereotypes. Wow. So they're just saying this is just stereotypes. So they're saying everybody thinks it no matter what. Anecdotes and stereotypes. Wow. That individuals rely on. It's not that religious uh, uh, individuals can rely on or can or may rely on. It's that individuals rely on to understand and respond to events. So here they're interpreting their interpretation is that people are just dummies that think in no other way than anecdote and stereotype. People don't ever research or pursue things or, or use methodologies. It's just stereotypes overgeneralizations, and whatever happens to fall in their lap. They don't ever, ever pursue things, right? So this is a very false um, 
interpretation of uh, of framing. So uh, again, who wrote this? Probably somebody uh, from the CIA. Um, okay, well, let's see. There's a note. Uh, this was Goffman, Frame Analysis, an essay on the organi- an essay on the organization of experience. Cambridge, Harvard University. There you go. Harvard is so bogus. So the fact that it comes from Harvard, to me, means it's probably heavily influenced by some woke, bigoted ideology, right? Because that university is. So that explains their false, shallow, juvenile interpretation uh, of this, their, their uncritical thought. So that we got to take this now into consideration, the, the, whoever, the guy that wrote this. So it's not a, a valid, critical cogent um, explanation. It's through the biased lens of a Harvard brainwashed idiot. All right. In other words, people build a mental series of filters through biological and cultural influences. Oh, wow. Yeah. So people build mental filters. Well, people actually build a library. We build our schemata, our library of concepts. And then as we we learn, we find some of our concepts are wrong. So then we readjust and we correct. We make corrections. It's like sailing a ship out in the ocean. A gust comes and blows you and you realize, oh, my heading is wrong now. I'm going to make a correction, right? Whereas here, they're not saying it's a library of uh, schemata, of schemas, of concepts that you throw away once that once you realize that it's oh this is garbage it's it's this this idea is wrong let's fix it no 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 they're saying it's a filter through uh, biological and cultural influences so they're saying biological i'm assuming it's your genetic uh uh so oh my god where are they going to go with this so biological and cultural influences. So according to this, everybody from a certain area with the same genetic makeup and the same cultural influences would have the exact same filters for uh, framing, which we absolutely know they do not. This is exactly fucking wrong. If you take a look at a family, they have the same genetics, same cultural influences, and yet people don't all get along and think the exact same thing in a family just because they have the same backgrounds. So this goes to show how wrong this is, this bullshit. So this episode actually might be on uh, analysis of the bullshit uh, framing of the social sciences coming out of Harvard. So then they use these filters to make sense of the world. No, we use our schemata, our library of concepts, things that we understand and perceive to make sense of the world. If we don't have the concepts, we can't perceive it. So they're saying they're filtering it through biological and cultural. So everybody with the same biology and the same culture will think exactly the same because that's what they're saying it is. It's through biological and cultural influences. Wrong, wrong, proven, wrong, demonstrably wrong. Uh, the choices they then make are influenced by their creation, by their creation of a frame. So their frame has been created. Uh, framing involves social construction of a social phenomenon by mass media sources. Wow. Political or social movements, political leaders, and other actors or organizations. So your framing is not created by you. You're too stupid. You're just an ignorant, dirty mass that can't come up with this. Your framing can only come from mass media, political, social movements. They say political leaders again. Um, Okay, no, sorry. It's political or social movements, 
political leaders, and other actors or organizations. Participation in a language community necessarily influences one... Okay, sure. Your language can influence your perception. But again, that means everybody who speaks the same language is going to have the similar views on things, which is we know it's total bullshit. All right. Uh, so participation in language community necessarily, necessarily influences. Okay, influence an individual's perception of the meanings attributed to words or phrases. Again, this is a gross overgeneralization, a gross uh, stereotype. Politically, the language, well, it's not technically a stereotype because they're not picking any person individually. They're just saying people organize into these classes. So this is the, uh, the, the religiosity, the, the, the false way of trying to uh, create an assertion based upon the mystery of what's going on there. Saying, this is what it is. I'm going to assert this and, and make these little piles and organize it in these piles, and this is the way it is. Well, not necessarily so, right? So participation in a language community, blah, blah, blah. Politically, the language communities of advertising, what? Politically, the language communities of advertising religion, and mass media are highly contested, Okay, whereas framing in less sharply defended language communities might evolve imperceptibly and organically over cultural time frames. So what do they mean by cultural time frames? They mean, uh, you know, uh, social behaviors and institutions in a society. So beliefs, laws, customs, uh, habits. Again, not everybody from the same culture has the same view. <laughs> or, or even, you know, you could, you could say there's a lot to do. You can, you know, have percentages, but those are not static. You know, it's not every community will have this percentage of people who think that or whatever. And uh, this sounds like it's a plan of action here, right? So, so framing in a less sharply defended language community, language community, as opposed to the uh, the uh, social movements, political movements, mass media, uh, other actors and organizations. I guess people put their defenses up when they hear those people talk. So they're talking, well, we can't, we can do that, but what we really don't want to do if we want to change the framing or reframe people, we got to do it in a more, a less, not more, but a less sharply defended language community. <laughs> and we want it to imperceptibly and organically over cultural time frames with fewer overt modes of disputation. We don't want people disputing our framing so we can do it imperceptibly and organically, slowly over time. Who comes up with this, right? It's so sinister. So one can view framing in communication as positive or negative. Well, that's an either or fallacy because you can view it as positive or negative or you can be indifferent to it. It can be neutral. Which, of course, you know, these people think bang, bang, bang off the walls to the extremes. 
depending on the audience of what kind of information is being presented. Framing, oh, I should restart these cameras, hold on. So one can view the framing and communication as positive or negative or neutral, depending on the audience and what kind of information is being presented. The framing may be in the form of equivalence frames, where two or more logically equivalent alternatives are portrayed in different ways. So equivalence, this is where people start getting off about false equivalences, you know, it's self-explanatory, but and people get upset over equivalences. We are not equal to them. They are dirty terrorists, right, says both sides. So uh, where was I here? The framing may be in the form of equivalence frames where two or more logically equivalent alternatives are portrayed in different ways, or emphasis frames, which simplify reality. Simplify reality. This is critical. When you simplify things, you make them less accurate, right? But we have to, heuristically. So, which simplify reality by focusing on a subset of relevant aspects of a situation or issue. So they simplify it by taking a smaller bite. They focus on a subset of relevant aspects of a situation or issue. In the case of equivalent frames, equivalence frames, the information being presented is based on the same facts, but the frame in which it is presented changes, thus creating a reference-dependent perception. So the same event perceived by different ways. The conflict in Israel, as perceived by the, uh, the Hamas, as perceived by the IDF, as perceived by the uh, Likud, as perceived by the uh, innocent Israeli population, as viewed by the innocent uh, Gaza population, as viewed by the innocent Palestinian uh, in the West Bank, or as viewed by the Jordanian or the, 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 the rest of the world, or the Western world, or the, the Chinese, or, uh, <laughs> or anybody, right? So there's more than one or two. It's not an either or. It's not a this side, that side. There are multiple sides. And, and in this case, especially, there's Americans sticking their nose in it, or perhaps the Americans are compromised since they're giving all the money to Israel, so maybe it isn't two separate organizations. Maybe it is, in fact, one. I don't know. If you look at the money, that's kind of what it looks like. So, yeah, so the, the, the information being presented is based on the same facts, but the frame in which it is presented changes. The effects of framing can be seen in journalism, the frame surrounding the issue can change the reader's perception without having to alter the actual facts of the same information uh, is used as a base. This is what I was talking about the last episode. You can say, a, you can talk about certain aspects. You can pick and choose, uh, you know, which, um, which aspects are, that you want to focus on. So you could say, again, a black man robs a bank. Or you could say a man robs a bank. Or if this black man was a Jew, you could say a Jew robs a bank. But you'll never hear that, right? You're not going to hear religion because you're not supposed to uh, uh, discriminate it based on uh, religion. But you'll hear skin color. So how come aren't we, we're not supposed to discriminate based on skin color, yet framing it by saying a person's skin color is implying 
that a bunch of people now, of course, they're not explicitly saying, oh, look at all the, uh, if it's a white guy, look at all the white guys that uh, rob banks. Here's another white guy robbing a bank, right? Or here's another uh, Latino or whatever, right? Again, and all these groups, this is, they're promoting by mentioning the skin color, white cop beats black man, right? They're, they're wanting you to use monolithic thinking. We all know not all there is it's a gradient from black to white, right? So you could have, you know, where where's at what point does a person right not black versus white? Is it Arab? <laughs> I mean, if you look at civilization, you have people, you know, uh, black mother, white father, right? And then people say, oh, oh, white's not a race. Well, neither is black. Black's not a race either. So. Again, I'm getting sidetracked because there's a recent thing in Canada where you're allowed to discriminate against people who are white. And if white's not a race, that's that's their argument. Well, then, you know, it's the same goes with black. It just, it just, it's, it's baffling. The country has gone to hell in a handbasket. But they frame it in a certain way, right? They're trying to frame it that, oh, we're not, we're not discriminating against white people. We're just saying you need to hire people of color first. And then if there's any openings, you can hire white people, <laughs> whatever. Like, it's ridiculous. That is discrimination. You could reframe it any way you want. It's not. It's still discrimination. It's uh, bigotry. And it's uh, monolithic thinking, basing things on, you know, skin color. The effects of framing can be seen in journalism. The frame surrounding the issue can change the reader's perception without having to alter the actual facts as the same information is used as the base, as a base. This is done through the media's choice of certain words and images to cover a story, thus using the word fetus versus the word baby. In the context of politics or mass media communication, a frame defines the packaging of an element of rhetoric in such a way as to encourage certain interpretations and to discourage others. For political purposes, framing often presents facts in such a way that implicates a problem that requires a solution. Members of political parties attempt to frame issues in a way that makes a solution favoring their own political leaning appear as the most appropriate course of action for the situation at hand. Now that is just some fundamental uh, things that everybody should be taught in elementary school. This is how they lie. This is how they distort things. They frame the news, politicians, commercials, uh, ad agencies, public relations, uh, now health experts, depending on who their funding is, uh, you know, uh, or uh, regulatory agencies if they're captured. If you have a regulatory uh, agency that's been captured by big pharma and they're paying them all and these guys are all going to have sweet deals or girls, guys and gals are going to have sweet deals after whatever regulations they pass, they're going to be put on the board of Pfizer, Moderna, whoever, some organization. So here we have some examples. When we want to explain an event, our understanding is often based on our interpretation or frame. So they're saying the frame is your interpretation, which is not true. That is not quite nuanced enough. Your interpretation, again, is how you put things together. Now, someone can frame something and you could see the framing, and that doesn't mean that's how you interpret it. So they're implying that if something is framed a certain way, you will interpret it the way that it's been framed. And that's not necessarily the case. And in fact, that's becoming less and less the case. As people see things, they're like, I call bullshit. If you call bullshit, therefore you are not interpreting the framing. So to say that something is uh, to, uh, to uh, make equal, 
uh, interpretation with frame is, uh, is bogus, as I just explained. So if someone rapidly closes and opens an eye, we react differently if we interpret this as a physical frame, they blinked, or as a social frame, they winked. The blink may be due to a speck of dust resulting in an involuntarily, uh, involuntary and not particularly meaningful reaction. The wink may imply a voluntary and meaningful action to convey humor to an accomplice, for example. So observers will read events seen as purely physical or within a frame of nature differently from those as occurred with social frames. Okay, again, <clears throat> they're implying here that people uh, may interpret things one way. And that's not what people do. People, maybe a lot of idiots do, but there's a lot of times when you will see something and you're like, well, this is possible. That's a possible interpretation. B is also another possible interpretation. And then we have C, it could also be that. And D, it could also be this. So it could be it, the, the facts all line up with all four of these interpretations. And then you start whittling them down. It doesn't mean that you're going to come to a final judgment. You might have to suspend judgment. You might have to say, I don't know which one it is. There's not enough evidence for me to make a final conclusion. I know it's probably, most likely, one of these four, but I don't know which one it is. They're all equally likely, or maybe two are more likely than the other ones, but it still could be the less likely one. Doesn't mean it's impossible for it to be that one. And it's also possible to be something that I haven't even thought of, which is quite often the case, right? We aren't um, you know, all seeing um, um, omnipotent machines that can say, here's the data, we know every possible outcome that what could be from what we see, right? The things could be uh, deceptions and lies. The data could be bad, right? We can't make a conclusion on data that we don't trust. Or that we, yeah, if you don't trust it, it could be true, it could be false. So, uh, yeah, so they're wrong here again. Again, this comes from some Harvard douchebags, right? So, Observers will read events as purely physical or within a frame of nature. Difference, blah, blah. So, but we do not look at an event and then apply a frame to it. Rather, individuals constantly project into the world around them the interpretive frames that allow them to make sense of it. So again, here they're implying there's only one way to make sense of the world, and you don't have multiple interpretations. Could be this, could be that, could be this, could be that. They're just implying that people are just one-track dummies, right? Because that's what they are. <laughs> Harvard. So rather individuals constantly project into the world, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we only shift frames or realize that we have habitually applied a, applied a frame when incongruity calls for a frame shift. Not necessarily. A lot of people, you, you'll see it, they will stick to the guns. They've been manipulated either by themselves or by an external agent to believe a certain thing. And even though there are incongruities uh, for their perspective based on the evidence, they don't change, right? People some people change. Some people are very fluid and they're open-minded, but they're also critical, so they don't just accept everything. And then there's the people who are just resilient. And once they've made up their mind, they do not change it. So here they're saying your frames will change only, right? If uh, there's an incongruity calls for a frame shift. Well, no, incongruities do not call for frame shifts in a lot of people, especially Harvard students and staff, faculty, presidents. In other words, we only become aware, and deans, 
Uh, in other words, we only become aware of the frames that we always already use when someone forces us to replace one frame with another. Again, through some, uh, though some consider framing to be synonymous with agenda setting, other scholars, scholars, oh, if it's a scholar said it, <laughs> other scholars state that there is a distinction. So who cares if it's a scholar that states it, right? So this is the fallacy of the expert. Just because they're a scholar doesn't make it so. Does it, just because they state it doesn't make it a fact. So other scholars state, talk out their ass, assert, hey, trust me, bro, that there is a distinction. So according to an article written by Don Weaver, framing selects certain aspects of an issue and makes them more prominent in order to elicit certain interpretations and evaluations of the issue. Whereas agenda setting introduces this topic, the issue topic to increase its salience and accessibility. They love the word salience. So according to this guy, framing selects certain aspects of an issue and makes them more prominent. Because so this is the, the cognitive fallacy of amplification. So they're going to take a certain aspect of an issue and then they're going to make it more prominent. They're going to amplify the one issue. There was a car accident. One car hit another car. But the one car was an electric car, right? It's not relevant, but they're going to amplify that that one car was an electric car. It was an electric car. It was a Tesla that hit the other car. I'm telling you, man, it was a Tesla, right? So what? They're, they're framing it. They're amplifying that issue, right? Does, now, is that, is that uh, a good thing or a bad thing? To amplify a thing, now what they're doing is they're negating what the other car was. The other car could have also been a Tesla. It could have been an electric car. But they're saying the car that hit it was an electric car. Like that has any meaning. It doesn't have any meaning. Right? This is a hypothetical. But when you amplify something, now you're, you're uh, negating or, or uh, subtracting. Dividing, <laughs> minimizing the other aspects. So if you if you tweak the aspects, and of course we have to select aspects. We can't get around it. We have to use heuristics because you're not going to sit there and say it was, you know, every nuanced detail of say an accident of two cars, right? Then they might focus about the drivers, right? The fact that one was drunk might be an issue, but if the drunk driver was parked and the other car hit him, then it doesn't matter that that guy was drunk or girl that was drunk. Right. So that's so focusing on certain framings. Oh, a drunk driver got involved in an accident. You immediately think it was a drunk driver's fault. It may not have been. The other person might have been a nun. A drunk driver and a nun get into an accident. Right. Well, it could have been the nun. Maybe she was texting. Right. So again, what you focus, what you amplify. And that's what they're saying here. The framing uh, selects certain aspects of an issue and makes them more prominent. So it's the cognitive error of amplification that is, should be well known by these people in order to elicit certain interpretations. So once they say it's in order to elicit certain interpretations, we know that this is intended to deceive and manipulate people. It's intended to manipulate people. It's intended to elicit certain interpretations and evaluations of the issue, whereas agenda setting introduces the idea or the issue topic to increase its salience and accessibility. So agenda setting just introduces a topic, according to this guy. So he's just trying to, I don't disagree with him trying to refine it. Oh, my leg's falling asleep. But, oh, that's bad. So, yeah, so 
according to these guys, framing, again, amplifies certain aspects to make them more prominent. And once people start doing that, intentionally, you are trying to manipulate people. Now, there are sometimes, if it's uh, an important fact, right? If it was a two-car accident and the one person was um, uh, underage, they didn't have their license, and they were hammered, and they drove into a car, right? doesn't matter who was in the other car, right? So now the victims are not relevant. The cars are not relevant. Uh, the cause, right? Unless you don't care about the cause. If you're just talking about uh, two Teslas got into an accident, you're not going to care that the person driving the car was an underage person with no driver's license who was hammered, right? So then you're going to be trying to frame it. Oh, look at how bad Teslas are. The electric cars are horrible. Two of them got to an accident, right? When in fact it was just some underage punk that got drunk and uh, stole the parents' car and uh, smashed it up, right? So again, framing isn't intrinsically a bad thing. You can use it to try to uh, accurately convey succinctly the point of what the event is that you're trying to communicate, right? All right, so where was I? Um, Effects in communication research. In communication, framing defines how news media coverage shapes mass opinion. Dick Vatz's course, discourse on the creation of rhetorical meaning relates directly to framing, although he references it little. To be suspic- who cares? Who's this guy? Who gives a shit? To be suspic- specific, framing effects refer to behavioral or attitudinal, attitudinal strategies and or outcomes that are due to how a given piece of information is being framed in public discourse. So you think, uh, okay, public discourse, public discourse is where people come together. There isn't too many places anymore where you're allowed to have public discourse, where people are, uh, come together to freely discuss and identify social problems or, you know, anything, uh, that is public discourse. It's supposed to happen, you know, in city halls and places like that. But uh, the only place it really happens now, I guess, would be like Twitter. Because uh, Facebook and all these other, anything controlled by Google or Alphabet or Face or uh, YouTube, it's all heavily censored and controlled. So the only place where there is actually public discourse today would be X. I hate calling it X because X is used for other things, <laughs> variables. Anyways. So today, many volumes of the major communication journals contain papers on media frames and framing effects. Damn straight, these guys are going to study this. They want to know this inside out. Approaches used in uh, such uh, papers can be broadly classified into two groups. Studies of framing as the dependent variable and studies of framing as the independent variable. The former usually deals with frame building how frames create societal discourse about an issue and how to differentiate frames are adopted by journalists. The latter concerns frame setting, how media frames influences on an audience. So that is the, uh, well, I guess they're both powerful, right? So frame building, how, how frames create societal discourse about an issue. So if you can manipulate frame building on a society level, right, then you can manipulate that society to become 
what you want it to, to, to perceive the world the way you want them to perceive it. And the other one is just simply how monkey uh, journalists bash away at their typewriters and uh, how they frame things, right, to an audience. The, the grunt, uh, uh, blunt form of manipulation, which is blatant and obvious, whereas the other is a little more uh, subtle and refined and done behind the uh, curtain. Frame building. Frame building research has typically recognized at least three main sets of influences that may impact the way journalists frame a certain issue. Systemic. Characterized uh, characteristics of the media or political system in the specific setting of study. Organizational. Features of the media organization, such as political orientation, professional routines, relationships with government and elites. Temporal contextual. Time elapsed after the triggering event. So these are different ways you can look at uh, frame building. So these, uh, no, these are different ways that impact uh, frame building. Systemic characteristics of the media or political system. Organizational. Featuring uh, features of the media organization, such as their uh, how they're oriented, and temporal uh, time after the event. So Irvin Goffman emphasized the role of cultural context as a shaper of frames when he posited that the meaning of a frame has implicit cultural roots. Hmm. So now the meaning of a frame has implied cultural roots roots. So if we can manipulate the societal framing of a culture, we can destroy that culture at their very roots. Who would want to do that? This context dependency of media frames has been described as cultural resonance or narrative fidelity is what we were laughing about the last episode. Uh, as an example, most people might not notice the frame in stories about the separation of church and state because the media generally does not frame the stories from a religious point of view. Oh, not in this country. Pretty sure they do in Israel and uh, Muslim countries. Actually, they do in the United States. Uh, there's definitely articles written uh, based on uh, Christianity and or Catholicism and all that kind of stuff, right? And I'm sure in Italy there's as well. So uh, frame building is a process that influences the creation or changes of frames applied by journalists. Frame building is a process that influences the creation or changes of frames. So frame building is a process that influences frames. <laughs> That's so stupid. The uh, term frame building borrowed from agenda setting research seems to capture these processes best. Frame setting. Frame setting is when people are exposed to a new news frame. They will accept the constructs made applicable to an issue. Will they accept them? But they are significantly more likely to do so when they have existing mindset for those settings. So this is called applicability effect. So how applicable are the targets? Can we uh, apply this framing to them and dupe them? That is when new frames invite people to <laughs> new frames invite people. Oh, isn't that so sublime? These this framing is inviting people to apply their existing schema to an issue. The implication of that application depends in part on what is in that schema. 
Everybody has unique schemas and schematas. That's a whole thing. Two twins who perceive. That's why you can have two twins that argue over things uh, and have different stances because they perceive the world and interpret the world differently, even though they're genetic clones. Therefore, generally, the more the audiences know about issues, the more effective our frames. 100% bullshit. Um, the less audiences know about the issue, the better they can frame it. If you knew for certain, like that one guy, the cops killed, uh, he was, uh, he just, I think he just raped a woman, his wife or something, or some girl, and he was in the van, and he, had, he was reaching for a gun, and the cop was, you know, yelling at him, and he was, he was grabbing the gun, so the cop shot him and killed him, right? So if you knew that, if you knew more information about the case, you would not have gotten emotionally upset when they portrayed that that individual story as white cop kills black man, right? And that's what they did. And people protest and got upset over that. But that's because they didn't know if they knew the details of the story. So here they're saying the exact opposite. They're saying if you do know, the, the frames are more likely to influence you, which is totally not the case. So this is total Bullshit. Obviously, it's harder to dupe people who know what's going on than it is to dupe people who don't know what's going on. Generally speaking, though some people who don't know just don't trust anything, right? So that's a it's an overgeneralization. You got to be careful. So um, therefore, generally, the more the audience knows about issues, the more effective. Not bullshit. For example, the more an audience knows about the deceitful practices of a tobacco industry, the more effective the frame is the frame of the tobacco industry rather than individuals who smoke. What? Being responsible. For example, the more an audience knows about the deceitful practices of the tobacco industry, the more, why don't they say about the the uh, Harvard social studies? <laughs> I'll change that. For example, the more an audience knows about the deceitful practices of Harvard social studies, uh, faculty, the more effective is the frame of the social Harvard Social Studies faculty rather than individuals who smoke. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So, for example, the more an audience knows about the deceitful practices of the tobacco industry, the more effective is the frame of the tobacco industry rather than individuals who smoke being responsible for the health impacts of smoking. Okay, I see. So if you, the more you know, but again, this is a false logic. Now we know cigarettes, you know, cause a cancer and stuff, right? But the logic of this is flawed. The more the audience knows about the deceitful practices of an industry. So if there's an industry that's deceitful, the more effective is the frame of the industry rather than the individuals who use the products being responsible for the impacts of that product. That's not necessarily true. I mean, well, it's definitely doesn't make the thing more true. Perhaps it makes people if if you if you if frame an industry as being deceitful, then it might be easier. Okay, I could see I'll agree with that. It's more effective uh, to frame that industry as being responsible for some malfeasance, right? Because if you already frame them as being deceitful, right, so that you're ad hominem them, so their deceitfulness doesn't directly correlate with their responsibility. Now, it just implies responsibility. It doesn't guarantee their guilt. It doesn't guarantee it at all. And we don't know anything about the individuals who are using the product. They might be super evil, right? They might be super deceitful. We don't know anything about them. Again, in this 
again, so I'm just talking about the logic of what they're talking about here. They're saying it's specifically about tobacco industries and people who smoke. But uh, so that, that as an example, that's a framing to make that logic uh, tenable. But it's it, that logic isn't, um, like I said, it's, it's not a... Uh, an accurate, it just works in that scenario. It's, it's appears to work in that scenario, but it's a flawed logic. So there are a number of levels and frames. Again, okay, going back to that. Yeah, it's more effective as the framing on the general masses of people or who aren't paying attention. I guess the lazy thinkers, okay, maybe that's what they're talking about, right? So yeah, okay, I'll agree with that. If they're thinking about lazy people who don't think about things and don't use logic and reason and try to suss out, is that logically sound? They might just be like, oh, uh, you know, Harvard's an evil school and Harvard did this, you know, Harvard, uh, you know, mal mistreated uh, some students. So then it's easier to say Harvard is guilty, right? Because they were framed as being an evil school or whatever. Okay, that kind of makes sense, but <clears throat> even still, that framing doesn't doesn't mean guilt. So I don't I don't think it is. Uh, this is this is what they do, right? So this is this is their game plan. It's you could see through it. There's a big hole right there that I just pointed to. So you could see there's a flawed logic, but they don't care. They just want to put this up there, and it's all about the deception. They don't care about people who are going to think critically because they're going to assume there's not that many people who try to say, well, that logic is flawed. Just because the school is evil doesn't mean that they're guilty of doing whatever to that to the students. Just because some student claims, oh, they did this. Well, it's an evil school. They probably did it. No, that's you can't you can't do that. So then they're guilty of anything anybody ever uh, you know says they did, right? So now a person who's ever done anything wrong or got caught doing anything wrong is guilty of anything that anybody ever fuck points their finger at and says, oh, they stole it, or they did it, or they raped somebody, or or they killed somebody. They're always going to be guilty just because they were portrayed in the past, or they were they were actually in the past, you know, um, deceitful, which is a flawed logic, obviously. Otherwise, we don't need courts. All we got to do is just throw people away, and whenever there's another crime, throw the same people back in jail. Don't even, uh, don't even investigate. Just grab the same guy, throw him in jail, because, hey, <laughs> that's the same law. I mean, it's, and this is coming from Harvard. So there are a number of levels, um, there are a number of levels and types of framing effects that have been examined. Wow. For example, scholars, not just, you know, you and me, scholars have focused on additional or uh, attitudinal and behavioral changes. The degrees of perceived importance of the issue, voting decisions, and opinion formations. Opinion formations. Others are interested in psychological processes other than applicability. For instance, Lanagar, I don't know who this Lanagar is, or Iyanagar, is that an I? Suggests that news, yeah, S. Iyanagar, I never heard Chicago. Uh, for instance, Iyanagar, if that's how you pronounce it, suggested that news about social problems can influence attributions of causal and treatment responsibility, an effect observed in both cognitive responses and evaluations of political leaders or other scholars looking at the framing effects on receivers, evaluative processing style, and the complexity of audience members' thoughts about issues. Frame-setting studies also address how frames can affect how someone thinks about an issue cognitive or feels about an issue affective. 
So this is all about how they can get into your head, right? This Iyengar person, right? This is what how we can make you have you can have implied causal and uh, and responsibility. Who's responsible? What was the cause? Who's responsible? And it can affect your uh, cognitive responses and evaluations of political leaders. So if you want to demonize a political leader the, in the general public, you can affect their cognitive response and evaluation. How powerful is that if you can demonize a political leader that is doing something against whatever narrative or gender or ideology your little pinko Marxist heart wants? Uh, or other scholars law looked at the framing effects on receivers Evaluative. So, wanted to say targets uh, processing of the complexity of audience members' thoughts about issues. So now we're talking about how complex the dirty masses are. Framing setting studies also address how frames can affect how someone thinks about an issue and how someone feels about an issue. Well, of course, if it's going to nitpick down to that level, of course it's going to affect how they think. It's just redundant to say that. And feel, especially if they're using your emotions as the trigger to make, that's how you, they're going to make you think about something. They're going to affect your emotions. Affective controls the cognitive. In manipulation, in the, in the fallacious appeal to emotion. Not, not in all cases, of course. If you're a rational person, your cognitive controls your cognitive. Your schemas and schematas control your cognitive. Not to say that you don't have emotions, but you can control your emotions and you can realize when your emotions are interfering with how you're thinking. Now, not everybody can, and uh, probably most, most of us can't. But uh, if you realize you're getting emotional about an issue, you can take a deep breath and take a look at it and then try to bury your, bury your emotions, put them down deep like Marge Simpson. <laughs> no. Address it, let it blow off, and then focus on the, the facts and try to be uh, as critical Always thinking, I could be wrong. I could be wrong, or just better off say, I'm more than likely wrong. And then look at it and try to prove yourself wrong. In mass communication research, news media f uh, frame all news. <laughs> news media frame all news items by emphasizing specific values, facts, and other considerations, and endowing them with greater apparent applicability for making related judgments. So that was uh, McLeod and Chung and Kim and Zhao and Lee and Liu navigating a diverse paradigm, a conceptual framework for experimental framing effects research. Hmm. So news media promotes particular definitions, interpretations, evaluations, and recommendations. Foundations in communication research. Anthropologist Gregory Bateson first defined the concept of framing as a spatial and temporal bounding of a set of interactive messages. A theory of play and fantasy, 1954. Uh, reproduced in 1972 in a book called Steps to an Ecology of Mind. Sociological roots of media framing research. Media framing research has both sociological and psychological roots. Sociological framing focuses on the words. Now, here's the meat and potatoes. They focus on the words, images, phrases, and presentation styles that communicators use when relaying information to recipients. Research on frames in sociology-driven media research generally examines the influence of social norms and values, so which social norms, and values 
organizational pressures. So who's pressuring them organizationally? And constraints. Who's constraining them? Pressures of interest peoples, interest interest no, or interest groups. So pressures of interest groups. So the the interest groups. What what so it goes to, yeah, obviously here they're saying interest groups affect it. Journalistic routines. So the technique they use for bullshit and ideological or political orientations of the journalists on the existence of frames in media content. So nowhere do we even try to be unbiased anymore. Nowhere is it, uh, you know, even handed. We're going to try to show both sides of the story. So the point here is it just looks like uh, balls out, go right to, uh, you know, to the extreme and try to manipulate the people to whatever ideology. But then that goes to show that's what that journalist's mind is. They're they're not impartial. I mean, they're they're not um, balanced. They're off balance. They're far this way or far that way or far that way or that way. Who knows? But they're so if they're allowing themselves to try to manipulate people to their thoughts, right? But then they might argue, well, who's right or who's wrong? Well, that's what we have: critical thought and and logic and evidence and try to prove it. You know, assertions are not science, right? Assumptions are not facts. So you got to prove yourself right. Don't try to say that, you know, well, if I'm wrong, you're wrong. Well, no, that's false logic. Todd Gitlin, in his analysis of how the news media trivialized the student New Left movement during the 1960s, was among the first to examine media frames from a sociological perspective. Frames, uh, Gitlin wrote, are persistent patterns of cognition. No, they're not persistent patterns of cognition. He's wrong. Interpretations and presentations of selection and emphasis that are largely unspoken and unacknowledged and organize the world for both journalists and for those who read the reports. They are not persistent. They are dynamic. I guess persistent as in they always exist but there may not always be the same. Depends on what he's meaning by persistent. A persistent pattern. It's not the same pattern, but maybe he means, no, he says persistent patterns. Not a persistence of patterns. Persistent patterns. So he's wrong. I agree that it's a persistence of patterns, but not persistent patterns of cognition, interpretations, presentation. So it might be a persistence of presentation. If these people don't change up their game, the uh, the manipulative journalists, and they're using the, the same patterns, right, then you start seeing it. It's better to shake it up, right? Always have a different pattern if you want to fool the ugly, dirty masses, the useless eaters. But, uh, okay, it's largely unspoken or unacknowledged. Well, the fact I'm talking about it right now, but again... I was arguing with people who have no clue. That's why I'm actually doing this, because these idiots from England had no idea, or unless they did know, and they were pretending they didn't know, and they were using, because they seemed to be really trying to squirm around, you know, why was I focusing on the the occupation, or, or that the journalist was focusing on the occupation of the victim? I'm like, well, why are they focusing on What is the importance or the relevance of them focusing on the, that was my the question, the framing. Why would they frame the the victim's occupation what does that have to do with anything and she happened to be a nurse so then the the framing of the 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 occupation leads you it's a it's a human um 
they're trying to go for the the human story, right? The the emotional appeal, the uh, the relatability. Oh, she's a nurse. She's uh, you know, uh, she's a good person. No, the poor person. Well, we know she could have been an evil Miss Cratchit from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? She could have been. Right? But again, they're trying to play on stereotypes. That's what these journalists do. They promote and practice stereotype. Psychological roots of media framing research. Research on frames and psychologically driven media research generally examines the effects of media frames on those who receive them, so the targets. For example, this Iyengar explored the impact of episodic and thematic news frames on targets' attentions. They say viewers, but I'll reword that to targets. The, uh, the viewers, the targets' attributions of responsibility for political issues, including crime, terrorism, poverty, unemployment, and racial inequality. So here we go. Of course, they're going to include racial inequality, right? Because they're going to, the implication there, just by saying that statement, is that one race is oppressing another race, which is, is that the case? It's not the case. So according to this, Iyengar, uh, episodic news frame takes the form of a case study or an event-oriented report and depicts public issues in terms of concrete instances. So in this instance, this example, uh, in other words, focusing on specific place and time, thematic news frame places public issues in some more general abstract context directed at general outcomes or conditions. So it's a theme across time versus an episodic event. Um, uh, example would be a white cop beating up a black man is an episodic thing, but that could also be framed as a thematic, you know, systemic racism against black people, right? Even though that one instance doesn't prove that, especially if the person, the black person was guilty, then it comes to like what their, their skin colors are irrelevant. For example, exploring commonality happens in several places in time. Iyengar found that the majority of television news coverage of poverty, for example, was episodic. In fact, in a content analysis of six years of television news, Iyengar found that the typical news viewer would have been twice as likely to encounter episodic rather than thematic television news about poverty. So they would rather they would have seen uh, um, instances of poverty versus trends over time of poverty. So they're not going to have stories about trends over time of poverty, poverty going up, poverty going down, number of people who are poor, the so you know the the education of those people, the backgrounds or whatever, you know, the the mental uh, status but uh, versus the 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 incidents, the episodic story. Further, experimental results indicate participants who watched episodic news coverage of poverty were more than twice as likely as those who watched thematic news coverage of poverty to attribute responsibility of poverty to the poor themselves rather than society. So if you see articles of one-ofs of individuals who are poor, according to this study this guy did, that you're more likely to blame the poor person for being poor than outside circumstances. Whereas the assumption here is that you, uh, I'll continue reading, maybe they say it, but then the assumption is, well, they said more. So then more than what? More than the thematic stories. So if, if they give stories about, you know, people in general being poor, 
the implication is that they're not going to blame the individuals as much. So this is a powerful tool for these uh, Marxists, right, who want to blame the established government. So this is a how-to specifically for the uh, Marxists who want to blame the, uh, you know, the, the Western government for poor people saying, look, so how do we do this? How can we blame them? If we show individual cases, right, the, the human interest stories of this, this poor person, the people are going to blame that person. But if we show more broad-based thematic stories about poor people, then they're going to start blaming the government. And then we can bring down the government and implement our uh, Marxist uh, death government, which will kill everybody. So this is sort of the idea of what they're doing here. They're sort of telling you how to go about doing that kind of thing, right? Especially since they're talking about the example is poor people. Given the predominance of episodic framing of poverty, I'm surprised though, because you would think the CIA and these other organizations are pretty much taking over Wikipedia. So if they are promoting this Harvard-style woke bigotry, that implies that they are, and, and this, this woke bigotry is Marxist and they're against the government, then the CIA is also against its own government, which makes sense if you think of back when the, how they were treating Trump and the FBI especially, right? And presumably the NSA, I don't know, but definitely the, uh, the FBI. So if that's the case, then they are already infiltrated by Marxists who want to bring down the government to what? some Marxist government that who's in control. So that means there's probably some sneaky actors hiding in the shadows, presumably. For example, the, the news media would use the laziness and dysfunction frame, which insinuates, well, now they're... <laughs> So now they're not just saying they're poor people. They're saying they're lazy and dysfunctional. So of course people are going to blame the individuals if you call them lazy and dysfunctional, which insinuates the poor would rather stay home than go to work. Well, they sound like they're leftists, right? Um, after examining content analysis and experimental data on poverty and other political issues, Iyengar concludes that episodic news frames divert citizens' attributions of political responsibility away from society and the political elites. Okay, so maybe that's what they're framing as. Hey, don't look at us. It's the individuals, right? So making them less likely to support government efforts to address those issues on obscuring the connections between those issues and their elected officials' actions or lack thereof. Hmm, interesting. So now this is a way to protect the government, right? So if you want to protect the government, if you're writing on behalf of some scummy Marxist government, like in Canada, you could focus on the individuals and say those people are responsible instead of doing... Uh, like the, the vaccine injured. Oh no, that person's an anti-vaxxer. They're a racist and a misogynist. Uh, you, 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 they're just full of it. Who cares what they say? It doesn't matter that their, their, their mother died or their, their, their sibling died or whoever died, their child died from the vaccine. That, that's, it's an individual, right? We're going to focus on the general broad, the broad statistics, right? Because then that sort of protects the, uh, the government. By pointing, but yeah, by focusing on the individuals, you're protecting the government. If they did do articles on the broad, then you have a greater chance of blaming the government. And that's what people are saying. Well, look at look at the stats. Look at the uh, all cause mortalities. Why is that number going up? The numbers don't. The government doesn't want to have those stories because that's not individual cases. These are cases now focusing on that will divert. And they know from this, the framing techniques here that will that attention will start looking at the government. So if you start looking at the all-cause mortality in the data, then that makes them look guilty because they are guilty. Whereas if you look at the individuals, you can blame the individuals. This is sort of the, the idea behind this, uh, the psychological roots of media framing. 
So visual framing. Visual framing refers to the process of using images to portray certain parts of reality. Visuals can be used to manifest meaning alongside textual framing. So what are they talking about, a graph? Text and visual function best simultaneously. Wow. Advancement in print and screen-based technologies has resulted in merging of the two modes of information dissemination. Well, the advancement of technology, we can actually have charts with words and numbers too, if you want. Really, we could put, and we could put dates on them as well. This is really advanced technology. Since each mode has its limitations, they are best used together and are interlinked in forming meaning. God. Images are more preferable than text, I'm assuming by themselves, since they are less intrusive than words and require less cognitive load. From a psychological perspective, images activate nerve cells in the eyes in order to send information to the brain. No way. Images activate nerve cells in your eyes. And then what? They, they send information to where? My brain? <laughs> Doesn't fucking reading do the same thing? Don't they activate nerve cells in my eyes and send signals to my brain? Images can also generate a stronger emotional appeal and have high value, high attraction value. That's not true because people who can write really well can trigger much stronger and deeper emotional um, narratives than just a picture, right? So you see a picture, you can get numb. You see dead bodies, eyeballs hanging out, whatever, you know, you can become immune to that. And I guess you can become immune to the, uh, to the, the written word as well, but to just to assert that uh, images uh, have a stronger emotional appeal is is uh, childish and simplistic and sounds like something an idiot from Harvard would come up with. Uh, images can also generate a stronger emotional appeal, no, and have high attraction value. Well, I mean, yeah, pictures are pretty, right? It's easier to look at pictures. Within the uh, framing context, images can obscure issues and facts in effort to frame information. So they're just talking about memes, I guess, right? So you have a picture, and you could a picture is a thousand words, but it's all about how you interpret that picture. What was that uh, that Russian editor? You put a picture of a guy, and then you, you juxtapose, a, you know, a dead baby, and then you show the guy, or then you put a bird, and he has something next to it. I can't remember what the things were, but then you interpret the guy differently based on what was compared next to him. I can't remember the guy. Some editor, pretty sure he's Russian, film editor, doesn't matter. Anyways, um, so uh, within the framing context, images can obscure issues and facts in effort to frame information. So yeah, if you, if you don't include things, of course, if you, if you take a picture, a zoomed in picture, you know, and then the greater picture tells the, the opposite implication of, of, of what that little zoomed in picture is implying, then yeah, of course. Within the framing context, images can obscure effects. Yeah. Visuals consist of rhetorical tools such as metaphors. So you can have visual metaphors. That's not what they're saying, but that is what they're saying. Depiction and symbols to portray the context of an event or scene graphically, an attempt to help us better understand the world around us. No, it's an attempt to help us believe the narrative that they're trying to portray by framing it in a certain way. It does not help us understand the world around us images now again if you this is you can use framing to try to better understand the world around you but it's 
a double-edged sword, you can absolutely, and these scumbags, you can absolutely frame it to not, but in fact, the opposite of better understand. You can frame it to make you understand something the opposite of what's true, right? To deceive you, to make you believe a lie, the opposite, to make you trust somebody who's untrustworthy, to make you blame somebody who's not blameworthy, the innocent. Images can have a one-to-one -one correspondence between what is captured on camera and represented in the real world. No, man, pictures can lie, right? Along with increasing understanding visuals, increasing understanding, no, no, along, along with increasing um, uh, false interpretations, it could be, a, it could be, it's not understanding. It's not interpretation. I guess it is. It could be a false interpretation. It could be uh, with increasing the believability of the narrative, I guess would be a better thing. Because it's not an understanding, right? I guess you're understanding their lie. Visuals can also elevate retention rates. Well, yes, absolutely. If you doodle, you can remember things by drawing doodles. So you can uh, have better retention if you have little visual pictures of things, right? So visuals can also elevate retention rates, making information easier to remember and recall. Due to the comparable nature of images, grammar rules do not apply. According to researchers, framing is reflected with a four-tiered model, which identifies and analyzes frames as follows. Visuals as denotive systems, visuals as stylistic semiotic systems, visuals as connotative systems and visuals as ideological representations. So this is sort of getting into the heavier down into the visual metaphor type thing, right? Uh, researchers caution against relying on only images to understand information. Well, of course, here's a picture of a circuit board. Do you understand it? Here's a picture of a car. Explain how it works, right? Well, how's a catalytic converter function? Here's a photograph of one. Since they, uh, they hold more power than text, they don't hold more power than text. Literally, just show a picture of an atom. Now you can do chemistry. Done. There's your education. Since they hold more power than text and are more relatable to reality. No, man, this is all just bullshit assertions. You can describe something that is more relatable to reality than a, a picture right? We may overlook potential manipulations and staging and mistake this as evidence. No shit. So this is what they're saying how to, right? The victim may overlook the manipulations and staging, and they may mistake this as evidence. So images uh, can be representative of ideologies by ascertaining underlying principles that constitute our basic attributes, our basic attributes, by combining symbols and stylistic features of an image into a process uh, of coherent interpretation. Oh, God. One study indicates visual framing is prominent in news coverage, especially in relation to politics. Emotionally charged images are seen as predominant as a predominant tool for framing political messages. That's why you got to have your politician yelling, and we will not do this, and I will listen to me. What, what did they say? Uh, oh, something about listen to me clearly. <laughs> something stupid. I can't remember what it is right now. Uh, but they, that's what they do. They, they try to act emotional to try to draw you into, oh, this is an emotional event. Therefore, I should be emotional. I should mimic what they're doing. If they're being emotional about this, then I should be emotional about that. 
Monkeys. Monkey see, monkey do. So visual framing can be effective by putting emphasis on a specific aspect of an issue, a tactic commonly used in portrayal of war and conflict news known as empathy framing. There you go. So this is well known, the fallacious appeal to emotion. Here they're just calling it empathy framing. Uh, visual framing has an emotional appeal has emotional appeal can be considered more salient. Visual framing that has emotional appeal can be considered more salient. So more impactful. So visual framing that has emotional appeal. And we know they're actually using the words here, emotional appeal. And that is the name of the logical fallacy, the, the logical fallacy, the emotional appeal, right? The fallacious appeal to emotions. So they're saying visual framing that uses the logical fallacy of emotional appeal can be considered more impactful. They're not talking about truth. They're not talking about search for truth. They're talking about impact, saliency. Uh, Entman suggested that frames select some aspects of a perceived reality and make them more salient, again with this word salient, in a communicating text, and such as a way to uh, promote a particular problem definition, causal interpretation, moral evaluation, and or treatment recommendation of for the item described. Edmund's conceptualization of framing, which suggests frames work by elevating particular pieces of information in salience, impact, uh, in line with much early, much early research on the psychological underpinnings of framing aspects, effects. Wire and Sroll explain the construct of accessibility Thus, people store related pieces of information in ref, uh, referent bins in their long-term memory. Two, people organize referent bins such that more frequently and uh, recently used pieces of information are stored at the top of the bins and therefore more accessible. Three, because people tend to retrieve only a small portion of information from long-term memory when making judgments, they tend to retrieve the most accessible, uh, accessible pieces of information to use for making those judgments. I think the implication here is also that it's, uh, it's easy to gaslight people when you go back further in time. It's easier to rewrite history that's older, right? Kind of makes sense. That's sort of the implication. It's not exactly what they're saying, but that's kind of the implication. Equivalency versus emphasis, the two types of frames in media research. Chong and Druckmann suggest uh, framing research has mainly focused on two types of frames, equivalency and emphasis frames. Equivalency frames offer different but logically equivalent frames. So now they all of a sudden understand logically equivalent which causes individuals to alter their preferences. The fact that they understand logically uh, equivalent implies to me, and then yet they're not using logic, implies that they're intentionally being illogical, right? You'd have to assume. Anyway, so equivalency frames offer different but logically equivalent phrases which cause individuals to alter their preferences. So they're going to give scenarios where people have the same scenario, but it's just worded differently. Equivalency frames are often worded in terms of gains versus losses. So you could frame it as a gain if you do this, or you could frame it as a loss if you do the exact same thing. For example, Kahneman and Tversky asked participants to choose between a two-gain-framed 
policy responses to a hypothetical disease outbreak, hypothetical COVID, expected to kill 600 people. So we know 600 people are going to die in this scenario. Uh, response A would save 200 people, so one-third of the, the, the 33%. Response A would save 200 people, while response B had a one-third probability of saving everyone. And so they say response B is a one-third probability of saving everyone, but two-thirds probability of saving no one. Okay, so now that's slightly different. So one-third probability of saving everybody, 600, and a two-thirds probability of saving no one. But they're saying response A would, it would save 200 people. So it's 100% chance it will save 200 100% chance it will save 33% of the people, where response B has a one-third probability of saving everybody and a 66% chance of saving nobody. Participants overwhelmingly chose A, which they perceived as the less risky option, even though they were guaranteeing 400 people to death. Whereas the other one, you give everybody a 33% uh, a chance of survival. Uh... So those are the options, right? You either guarantee the death of 400 people and guarantee the survival of 200 people, or you give everybody a 33% chance of survival. Which would you choose? They chose the killing of 400 people. I think I'd probably take the 33% uh, of everybody, but then that's a 66% chance of everybody dying. <laughs> that's the whole point, right? It's not supposed to be an easy choice. Uh, Kahneman and Tversky asked other participants to choose between two equivalent loss-framed policy responses to the same disease outbreak. In this condition, response A would kill um, 400 people, while response B had a one-third probability of killing no one, but two-thirds probability of killing everyone. But response A would kill 400 people. So it's the exact same scenario. Instead of response A saving 200 people, response A kills 400 people. So they just worded the exact same thing. That's all they changed. And, uh, and they found their results. Although these two options are mathematically identical to those given in the gain-framed condition, participants overwhelmingly chose B, so they, the risky option. So they would rather choose the 66% chance of death to everybody than the certainty of killing 400 people. But if they're said, hey, you could save 200 people, or you could have a 66% chance of killing everybody, they choose the uh, save 200 people. Interesting, huh? Kahneman and Tversky then demonstrated uh, that when phrased in terms of potential gains, people tend to choose what they perceive as the less risky option, the sure gain. You could save 200 people. Yeah, I'm taking that one. Conversely, when faced with a potential loss, people tend to choose the riskier option. Well, you only got a 33% chance of saving everybody, or you're going to kill 400 people. They take the uh, it's the exact same scenario, right? You want to save 200 people, or do you want to take a 66% chance of killing everybody? They, take, they save the 200 people. Do you want to kill 400 people? Where 200 survive, or do you, you get the point. Unlike equivalency frames, emphasis frames offer qualitatively different yet potential relevant considerations. 
which individuals use to make judgments. Use your judgment. It is important to note that emphasis framing is distinct from agenda setting. Emphasis framing represents the changes in the structure of communication to evoke a particular cognitive schema. Agenda setting relies upon the frequency or prominence of a message's issues to tell people what to think about. I'll read that again. Agenda setting relies upon the frequency or prominence of a message's issues to the uh, to tell people what to think about. Emphasis framing refers to the influence of the structure of the message and agenda. Ref uh, setting refers to the influence of the prominence of the context. For example, Nelson, Clausen, and Oxley exposed participants to a news story that presented the KKK's plan to hold a rally. Participants in one condition read a news story that framed the issue in terms of public safety, while participants in the other condition read a news story that framed the issue in terms of free speech. Participants exposed to the public safety condi uh, condition considered public safety applicable to deciding whether the Klan should be allowed to hold a rally, as expected, expressed lower tolerance for the Klan's right to hold a rally. Participants exposed to the free speech condition considered free speech applicable for deciding whether the Klan should be allowed to hold a rally and, as expected, expressed greater tolerance for the Klan's right to hold a rally. Hence, people who want to hold uh, talks that other people don't want to hear will argue free speech. Whereas people who don't want them to talk or expose their Marxist ideology will say it's not safe. It's dangerous for them to have their free speech. This is literally, this is a recipe for what they, what happens. The Antifa, the Black Lives Matter, and all the other puppets of the FBI will go out and do this verbatim. And I'm sure they're mostly Harvard graduates. In finance, uh, preference reversals and other associated phenomena are a wider relevance within behavioral economics. Now, behavioral economics, is that not two words that should not be put together? As they contradict the predictions of rational choice. Wow. I'm going to read that again. Preference reversals and other associated phenomena are a wider relevance within behavioral economics as they contradict the predictions of a rational choice. The basis of traditional economics. So they're saying economics is traditionally based on rational choices. Framing biases affecting investing, lending, borrowing decisions make one of the themes of behavioral finance. Behavioral finance is the study of the psychological, cognitive, emotional, cultural, and social factors involved in the decisions of individuals or institutions and how those decisions deviate from those implied by classical economic theory. That's behavioral economics. In psychology and economics, Avos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman have shown that framing can affect the outcome of choice problems, choices one makes, uh, so much so that some of the classical axioms of rational choice are not true. So then it's not quite an axiom. Uh, this led to the development of prospect theory, 
prospect theory is the theory of behavioral economics judgment decision making uh, that was developed by Kahneman and Tversky in 1979. The context or framing of problems ad uh, adopted by decision makers results in part from extrinsic manipulation of the decision options offered. Extrinsic means external, like the uh, money, grades, praise, fame. So that's the extrinsic uh, manipulation. So people can manipulate you with uh, the promise of praise or, or grades or fame or money or, you know, whatever, a car, you know, material things, whatever, something external. Although you think praise is actually appealing to your internal. Ultimately, I guess all these things are. It's your desire to want those things that is in intrinsically internal. But uh, anyways, so the... Uh, where am I? Part of the extrinsic manipulation, the decision options offered, as well as the form, uh, as well as from forces intrinsic to decision makers, the norms, habits, uh, unique temperament, so those are your intrinsic. Now they're talking about intrinsic as in decision-making. So in the intrinsic uh, factors to uh, affect your decisions are your habits, you know, you, your temperament, things unique to you. Absolute and relative influences. Framing effects can arise. Uh, framing effects arise because one can often frame a decision using multiple scenarios in which one may express benefits either as a relative risk reduction or as absolute risk reduction. Extrinsic control over the cognition distinctions between risk tolerance and reward anticipation adopted by decision makers can occur through uh, altering the presentation of relative risks and absolute benefits. So this, this is pretty powerful stuff if you think about uh, uh, somebody trying to manipulate Oh, really? So this is, uh, if you think about somebody who's in a, uh, a caucus or a cabinet that they want to manipulate the leader, these are the techniques they're going to use and how they're going to frame the things to try to manipulate the leader. And if the leader is a naive idiot, then they'll fall for it. But uh, leaders in politics generally have been exposed to enough uh, rhetoric and bullshit that they can detect um they can detect framing, and uh, they they know about absolute and relative uh, influences, uh, relative risk reduction, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, absolute risk reduction. So you can thirty three percent chance of saving everybody, and save two hundred people, or you can kill four hundred people, with a sixty six percent chance of killing everybody, right? So the one sounds more positive than the other, but they're both the exact same scenarios. Um, extrinsic control over the cognitive distinctions between risk tolerance and risk reward adoption, uh, anticipation, adoption by decision makers can occur through the altering, through altering the presentation of relative risks and absolute benefits. People generally prefer the absolute certainty inherent in a positive framed effect, which offers an assurance of gains when decision uh, appears when decision options appear framed as a likely gain risk averse choices predominate a shift towards risk seeking behavior 
occurs when a decision maker frames decisions in negative terms or adopts a negative framing effect. In medical decision making, framing bias is best avoided by using absolute measures of efficacy. Now with this COVID, we are not allowed to talk about efficacy. We're not allowed to talk about vaccine injury. We're not allowed to talk about all this stuff. And this is obviously under the control from somebody. Uh, frame manipulation research. Researchers have found that framing decision uh, problems in a positive light generally results in less risky choices with negative framing of problems. Riskier choices tend to result in a study by researchers at Dartmouth, 57% of subjects chose a medication when presented with benefits in relative terms, whereas only 14% chose a medication whose benefit appeared in absolute terms. Further questioning of the patients suggested that because the subjects ignored, ignored the underlying risk of disease, they perceived benefits as greater when expressed in relative terms. Interesting how they're framing this. This is, I'm assuming, before COVID. Um, theoretical models. Researchers have uh, proposed various models in explaining the framing effect. Cognitive theories such as fuzzy trace theory attempt to explain the framing effect by determining the amount of cognitive processing uh, effort devoted to determining the value of potential gains and losses. Prospect theory explains the framing effect in functional terms, determined by preferences for deferring perceived values, based on the assumption that people give a greater weighting to losses than to equivalent gains. Motivational theories explain the framing effect in terms of hedonic. What's hedonic? Hedonic refers to the priorization of pleasure in one's life, like hedonism. So uh, motivational theories explain the framing effect in terms of hedonic, hedonic, hedonic forces affecting individuals such as fears and wishes based on the notion that negative emotions evoked by potential losses usually outweigh the emotions evoked by hypothetical gains. Cognitive cost-benefit trade-off theory defines choice as a compromise between desires either as a preference for a correct decision or a preference for minimized cognitive effort. There you go. So people don't want to think about it. That's pretty key right there. Give them a bunch of shit. This is just complicated stuff that you got to think about. Or here's the simplified thing. You can choose X. I'll just choose X. Right. This model, which dovetails elements of cognitive and motivational theories, postulates that calculating the value of a sure gain takes much less cognitive effort than required to select a risky gain. Neuroimaging. Cognitive neuroscientists have linked the framing effect to neural activity of the amygdala and have identified another brain region that appears to uh, moderate the role of emotion on decisions. So there's a part of your brain that actually controls your emotion on decisions. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging to monitor brain activity during the financial decision-making task, they observed greater activity in the OMPFC, uh, OMPFC of those research subjects less susceptible to the framing effect. So here they're saying there are people who are less susceptible to the framing effect, but they observed greater activity in their uh, the uh, orbitable orbitable orbital and medial prefrontal cortex.
So you got to think more and you'll be less. That's the gist, right? The more you think, the, the less susceptible you are to framing. The less you think, the more susceptible you are to framing. And if they can get you to think less by with pretty pictures and simple solutions and dumb things down, that's the choice that a lot of sheep will make. So you don't want to be a sheep unless you do. You're, I mean, you're free to be an idiot. You could choose to be an idiot. But if you want to not be duped by other people, which is never to your benefit, uh, you got to think about things. And it doesn't take much energy right, to think. Mm -hmm.